Green Crow Inn, a novel by Derek A. Kamal, read by Kelman Friedman. Chapter 4. Taps. I awoke next morning to a truly horrible sight. My eyes opened and there was the wrinkled visage of Furrier, his greenish face contorted into some kind of hell grin, but then the look soured. Garn! shouted the troll. Go back to sleep! I's got a bucket full of water ready for ye. I blinked hard, but the ghoulish image refused to go away. This was really happening. No, I slurred. Fine. Waking. With a guttural sigh, Furrier up and left. I had dreamt that night. It was a dream of the kind of nearer memory when one feels half awake, even if they are not. My mind's eye slipped between trees and down a slope studded with rocks. Moss clung to those rocks with desperate affection. The dirt path they flanked wound this way and that, complemented by the rattling of leaves on summer trees. Then the trees grew faces. Upon waking and somewhat recalling this dream, I thought of Tila Hill. While the iteration of this place cast by my imagination was not precise, as dreams often are not, I had decidedly dreamt of that wood. My father would say that dreams are the way our minds do accounts, the way we reconcile the world around us. This was somewhat true, and I had hoped that my mind had gotten things sorted because I had no real wish to dream that dream again. The last leg of my journey to Nawari was when we had traversed Tila Hill. The driver of our coach was skilled, if a bit rough around the edges. What do you want in Nawari? he asked. I'd pretended not to hear. That trek was much like the dream, and clearly its inspiration, a twisted dirt path through wild woods. It had also been as upsetting, for just as we were perhaps at the halfway mark of the forest, I began to feel very unsettled. Like I'd arrived at a party, but instead of greetings, I was given stares. The feeling did not abate, but grew worse, and then verged on madness when I gasped at two yellow eyes staring back at me through the brush. They twinkled, and then faded away as the carriage rushed forward. "'We're just a forest critter, I reckon,' the driver had said. However, I was sure, I heard him mutter, "'Something terrible about this forest, though.' Ah, yes. I was meant to be at a meeting. The next few moments were a blur of linens and water, as I attempted to dress, tidy the bed, and wash my face using the basin in the corner. In a more alert state, I would notice the fine porcelain bowl standing before the mirror sealed in a lavishly carved oak wardrobe in marvel. But again, that would be later. For now, I caught a faint glimpse of myself and wondered, momentarily, at the lines of my face. They seemed deeper somehow, the creases at the corners of my amber eyes more pronounced. Were those eyes sad, though? No, not sad. Mother would often say something about sad to glad, but it was too early for glad. I was not sad, nor was my face. My patchy black whiskers remained indifferent, refusing to grow into anything other than a scant and pointed goatee. My head was at least clear enough to think I could go another day without shaving, maybe two. I managed to pull a blue-gray tunic over my head and stumble through the door and after an educated guess at the correct direction, made my way upstairs to the office. Something snared the toe of my boot on the threshold and I tumbled forward. Thanks to my sleepy stupor, regaining my balance was but a faint hope, and my comedic tumble only stopped with a fair amount of help from Calca's desk. 
It shook violently at the collision, yet I remained upright. Opening my eyes inches from the desktop showed me I was face to face with a veneer which, I should not have found surprising, was a sparkling red-brown. Is this... I started. Sit. Kalka's words rolled me over. I looked up at my innkeeper and sank into a chair. I told you morning meetings were at first light, she said. Clearly, she was annoyed, but her voice remained calm. The patrons will not unbed themselves. Right, I said. Sorry. My eyes drifted to Sumi, who looked debilitatingly chipper this early in the day. Like most dwarf women, she kept stubble on her chin, but unlike most dwarf women I'd met, she did not use a veil. Her long and jet-black hair was kept up in a high ponytail. Kalka looked less chipper, and she sighed. <sighs> the Gomols take coffee, not tea, so don't get them crossed when delivering their breakfast. Right, nodded Sumi. She noticed my gaze, then flashed her eyes back to Kalka. I took the signal and looked at the boss. Carmichael and Pram are meant to come this morning with a delivery of melon rind ale. Furrier scoffed from the corner. I know, said Kalka apologetically. But that horse of theirs, Muffin, has got some genuine emotional issues. Maybe a new hostler can give them some advice. I looked at Furrier, then back at Kalka, then back to Furrier, who gave me a knowing grin with a wink to boot. Yes, I said. The horse is just a creature of such emotional intelligence that... And finally interrupted the innkeeper. I saw Skiverin and Bodil on the way back from market this morning. He says he and the dads are coming in tonight. Sumi and Furrier both sighed and rolled their eyes. Get out now, because if you do that with guests around, I'll knock your heads off, said Kalka. I realized then that there were no papers on her desk, save a few odd receipts and personal letters. She was doing all this from memory. Wait, I said. Who are the dads? What is a dad. You're really from the capitals, aren't you? said Kalka. Okay, I said. Go and see to the horses. I felt I should respond, but fought the impulse. Back to the stables already? Sumi looked embarrassed, furrier, amused. I collected myself and made the long walk down the stairs, out the back door, into the stables. Minutes passed. Horses munched and looked at me with curiosity, as if they too did not understand why I was back among them at so early an hour. I would rather have been working on the floor, helping with breakfast or the like, while I waited to see Nandaya, but the pretense of my skill with horses had to be maintained. I doubt Kalka would much enjoy discovering my ruse. Hello! Sumi stood in the doorway. I smiled and smoothed my hair. Hello. Meeting over. Yes! she said in her curious accent. There wasn't exactly much else to be discussing, and she had to be getting breakfast on. This caused me to pause and think. Maybe Kalka hadn't really excluded me from the meeting. A dad is a father. What? I asked. It is just an affectionate term. I am guessing its use is not common in decent places, said the dwarf. I shrugged. This is decent places, but you're right. We tend to stick with father, or sometimes we will hear children say, Ate. My father was always father, though. He made sure of that. Mention of my father hadn't happened in some time. I found an odd mix of frustration and embarrassment rising up in me. No doubt he is being very nice, said Sumi kindly. Well. Well, 
What Kalka is meaning by the dads is a pack of fellows coming from the town. They are in the Green Crow from time to time for the drinking and conversing and the gaming. Skivron is sort of their leader, and Bodil is his wife. Though, now that I am thinking on it, it is very odd, for I'm not sure that they are having any children. Sumi trailed off, then got back to it a moment later. When the dads are here, the conversing is getting loud. That is all we were moaning about. One might be thinking that they hate each other by the end. They are getting sloppy drunk from the drink and go on and on about how terrible things are being for them. It is genuinely annoying. I look forward to it, I said with a laugh. Sumi paused and looked at me sideways. Oh, it it's just... I stammered. Ah, the joking! She exclaimed so loudly that I jumped. Then she laughed, and her laugh was like timber snapping. Despite the sound, her smile was pleasant. Her full cheeks turned in a pleasing way, and when the clamor began to dissipate, I asked a question I'd had in mind since I met her. Sue me, I said with confidence. Where are you from? Crenaldeep, of course, she said, and laughed again. The sound echoed after her as she exited the stable. Turning, I put an affectionate hand to the brindle horse in the next stall and said, I have no idea where that is. It was past tea-time, with supper racing towards us like a wave, and I still had not seen Nandaya. Kalka, it seemed, was finally convinced that the horses were sated, and that I could resume my duties indoors with the rest of the civilized world. Though there was an odd moment where, after the arrival of Carmichael and Pram, Furrier locked eyes with their horse. We were at the rear of the inn, between the stable and the building itself, offloading the kegs and a few spare melons when Furrier came by to check the numbers. He stopped, the horse stopped, and so we stopped. And just when it seemed that there would be harsh words exchanged between troll and horse, all resumed as if nothing had happened. A true puzzler. But taps were my purview at the moment. I checked the drafts half-heartedly, ensuring the metal piping that ran from keg to spout flowed freely and unobstructed. The green crow had ten taps in all, though only five or six were used regularly. Rare was the evening when the common room was crowded enough to demand the full battery. Those were feast days, or perhaps the rare occasion when some popular performer popped through, based on the little I could gleam from the regulars. It made checking the lines a bit easier, as there were some out of use and easy to examine. On tap were antler ale, elephant beer, a small beer by a local amateur named Gilly, melon rind, and something else I could not figure. The common room was fairly quiet, with only two tables to service. Warm sunshine poured through the windows as the sun westered, previewing the end of the day. Sumi was there, mingling and chattering, while Kalka worked the kitchen preparing the dinner fare. Slow, thunking footsteps caught my attention, but, being under the bar at the taps, I stood too quickly and bludgeoned myself on the hardwood. I surfaced with a groan and leaned on the bar, not caring if I smudged the shine somehow. Furrier was there, and he was laughing. "'You're too much, mate,' he said with some effort. "'Far more entertaining than old Gilrad!' If Sumi's laugh was the crack of timber... Furrier's was the sound of a mule being swallowed up by some bog or other, but the donkey'd had a rich life and was unwilling to succumb without a lot of noise and despair. I sighed and nursed my poor head. The troll plunked a sack on the bar top and said, Slap her in the tail, and trudged on slowly, 
The till was a massive chest that lived under the bar, an old rusted metal thing difficult to lift, probably to prevent a general theft. For good or ill, it was kept unlocked during business hours and was regularly emptied into a larger, heavier, more secure chest in Kalka's office. The thing creaked open and there was Furrier again, appearing over me in a blur. "'Yous ain't even gonna ask,' he said flatly. "'Ask what?' "'Ask where the money come from.' "'Why would I?' "'Because it come from that girly you was eyeballing last night.' The troll pouted and batted his eyes with an unmistakable level of mockery. I slammed the chest and stood quickly. Made motion I winced from my poor head and rose more carefully, saying, "'Am I to just assume this money came from her? What's that to do with anything?' Furrier shrugged. So, is she coming down? Funny thing, dat, he slurred. Then there was silence. Well, I nearly shouted. Well, she weren't in there. She just left the gold. She's just left the gold. More silence. Ta-ta, shouted Furrier as he swaggered off. Just then, Kalka appeared from the kitchen wearing an apron smattered with flour. She swiped a glass from the back bar, went to pour, and the taps buttered, filling the glass with froth. The innkeeper turned an expectant look my way. Sorry, I muttered. I haven't finished cleaning them. Kalka sighed and rubbed her eyes, then returned to the kitchen. Kalka, I said. She stopped. Did you happen to see the woman? Red cloak, red hair. Nandaya is her name. Nope. And with that, she went back in the kitchen. I back to the taps. The afternoon grogged on slowly. A few tables' worth of patrons came and went, Sumi seeing to their needs in loving fashion, but not much else. The quiet hum of a few groups in the common area was, I found, a pleasant sound. It was an odd buffer to the outside world, a comfortable buzz insulating one from whatever it was that lie beyond the warmth of the hearth and the shining splendor of the bar. In some ways it was better than a full bustling crowd. I finished cleaning the taps, at least I thought I had, the innkeeper hadn't the time to inspect them. This was, in large part, due to her duties in the kitchen. Horses being calm, and the common room even calmer, there was time enough for me to risk a look into the kitchen, that being the busiest place at the Green Crow for the moment. The dusting of flour had grown and overtaken her apron, dimming the vibrant blue of her tunic to a dull gray around the shoulders and sleeves. A worthy sacrifice, judging by the smell of whatever was baking in the oven. The scent struck me fiercely as soon as I crossed the threshold. The dough was already rolled flat on the center work table, and I watched as Kalka slid a round of dough into a pan. Deftly and swiftly, the tall gindi woman scooped the filling from a large pot and placed a hearty portion in the dough. The mixture appeared to contain hunks of root vegetables, red meat, arak perhaps. She has never and will never let me see the recipe and various spices. I'm sure I caught a whiff of tripe leaf. Then came another round of dough set atop the pan that was crimped together with the first bit of dough. An almost haphazard but perfectly executed slash was made to vent the pie, and then, in a single motion, her mitted hand pulled the previous pie from the oven while her other hand slid the new one inside. Even with limited culinary experience, I could see the first pie was done with no more than a look at the golden-brown crust. Kalka sighed. Pudding won't be done in time. Why's that, I asked. She looked my way as if noticing me for the first time. Because there's no more time, Torson. Why not get help in the kitchen instead of doing it all yourself? She sighed again and undid her apron, harshly tossing it onto the table. 
The blue of the clean part of her tunic clashed with the flowered parts. Why so many questions? Are you writing a book? I shrugged. I don't have help in the kitchen because I do it properly. I stopped myself from prodding at this comment, but could not help myself from another question. Why is there no time? Seems like supper is just barely here. There's no time because... The dads are here! We heard Sumi's voice before we saw the little dwarf pop into the kitchen, grinning as ever, though a touch of anxiety tugging at the corners of her smile. Kalka gestured at Sumi and gave me another one of those waiting looks. Right, I said, and made for the bar. This has been The Green Crow Inn by Derek A. Kamal, read by Kalman Friedman, with music by Michael Elliott. To find out more, including how to purchase your copy of the novel, please visit shorelessskies.com.